0: Now that a man from Florida has been indicted for everything except the Kennedy assassination and the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, we are able to get on with our lives and talk about that time in Washington, D.C., when some people were so mad at the government and the perceived injustices that they marched in the streets and rioted. They also had firearms, which they threatened to use, And they burned a certain politician in effigy, which for those of you under 30 means that they burned a doll of the politician. No, not a Barbie doll. Usually it was a full-sized, well, effigy of the offending person. Just Google the word if you don't know it already. Anyway, long before a time when everything became the greatest, this or the most amazing that people who were upset had a way of letting it be known that they were upset without resorting to social media or donating to various political causes that might or might not involve the purchase of real estate. And since everything seems to need to have a ranking as the most violent day in history, we now take you to a day not that long ago when a large group of Americans who felt that the government was ignoring them, and, in fact, was abusing them, took to the streets of Washington, D.C., and began to burn things in a mostly peaceful manner. It was, as they say, the greatest riot in the history of Washington, D.C.
1: This is Plausibly Live. You know, regardless of where you stand on the Fed, there is a lesson in economics that I think is important to understand. And that is regardless of which side you're on, it's always the other guy's fault. It's always the other side that's screwing things up. When it came to the idea of a national bank, Washington thought it was a pretty good idea. Of course, he was The the idea was pushed by Hamilton, but Washington thought it was a good enough idea that we should try it because the economics of of the era was so bad. But he was wise and cautious enough to make sure that it only was chartered for 20 years. So the Bank of the United States, first Bank of the United States, was only chartered for 20 years. And it expired. And then the War of 1812 came along. The War of 1812 messed things up Bad, economically. So bad that Congress said, you know what, this worked before, let's do it again. And so they is- issued the charter for the second U.S. bank in 1816 and set it to expire in 1836. Hopefully that'll be enough time to recover financial. Time passes. Andrew Jackson becomes the president of the United States. They go to recharter the bank and Andrew Jackson, famously opposed to the National Bank, said, no, we're not rechartering this bank. And they didn't. In the Senate, one of the leading senators, a guy by the name of John Tyler, was livid. He was a Whig. He was one of the leading Whigs. The Whigs were the opposition party to the Democrats, Andrew Jackson's party. And Tyler declared that Jackson's veto of the second U.S. bank was a, quote, abuse of power, unquote wasn't an impeachable offense? Well, nobody was going to impeach Jackson, but you know, the thinking was he won't be president forever, so let's see what happens. Unfortunately for the Whigs, Martin Van Buren a Democrat, practically hand-picked by Jackson was re was elected uh, again. And in, in the election of 1836 and in 1837 he too vetoed the charter for the for the Second US Bank. So now you've got Democrats vetoing the charter. You've got the Whigs who are screaming, the economy is in the tank because of the Panic of 1837. Now, this is not an economics podcast, and I got to be clear about that. But the Panic of 1837 was one of the worst financial crises this nation has ever faced. Banks were collapsing. Unemployment was through the roof. Businesses were under. And of course, everybody was blaming everybody else. Van Buren, Blamed, actually blamed Jackson for it, the Whigs blamed Van Buren and Jackson, and they, they were particularly upset about the lack of a bank, U.S. bank, for the issues. Now, what you need to understand about what was going on here, and again, this is not an economics podcast, but in the 1830s, you had this land speculation. Credit was very easy because there was no centralized banking system so credit was very easy to get people were buying up land very cheaply as the country expanded westward and planning to resell it at a great profit later on but when jackson closed the second or the first us bank and started moving stuff around he decentralized the banking structure this led to unregulated lending and that fueled speculation then the jackson administration issued what they called the Specie Circular, which required anybody buying land from the government to pay for it in gold or silver, hard currency. The problem, of course, is that nobody has hard currency. They have credit and paper money. Well, the banks had to pay for the land that they were buying to resell in gold and silver that drained their reserves. And you, you had a contraction of the money supply. You had all these factors going on. That should sound very familiar to us, but for some reason, we just don't seem to learn the lessons. I'm not sure why. When the panic of 1837 hit, banks were closing. The public lost any confidence in banking whatsoever. There was an economic depression, high unemployment. Prices, particularly for land, fell precipitously, which meant that all these people that were buying land, relatively cheap, planning to sell it and become rich, were suddenly stuck with this land that they couldn't afford, and they couldn't sell. But the biggest thing you need to understand about the Panic of 1837 is that the Whigs, the Whig Party, blames the lack of the United States Bank and the Jackson Van Buren Vetoes for these problems. You have to understand that the Whigs blamed the lack of a U.S. bank for the problems. In other words, if we just had a US bank, we wouldn't be having these problems. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm about to relate. In eighteen forty, the Whigs ran a guy for president by the name of William Henry Harrison. His nickname Tippy Canoe from the Battle of Tippy Canoe, which he was the leader at and won. Now Harrison in his campaign, even though he's a Whig, and even though the Whigs are upset about this bank thing, he does not make the bank a central campaign theme. Now, the reason he doesn't do this is because Whigs support the idea of the Bank of the United States, and it was just sort of assumed that if Congress, which was controlled by the Whigs, passed a bill, he would sign it. He wins the election by 5%, which today would be called a landslide, but in 1840 really wasn't. And, but he did smash the Electoral College. He got 234 votes to 60 for Van Buren and wins the presidency in 1840. He follows this up in March March 4th, 1841, by giving the longest inaugural address in U.S. history. I'm sure it was probably the greatest inaugural address in U.S. history, too, but we know for a fact that it was the longest. We also know that it was a very rainy and cold day in Washington, D.C., and we know that Harrison did not wear a coat or a hat standing out there in the rainy day delivering the longest and probably greatest speech in American history. The lesson you need to take from this is that nobody remembers anything about that speech except that it was too long. There were two things in this speech of note, however. One is that for some reason, Harrison was deeply concerned about the danger of presidential succession by means other than an election. Nobody's really clear why he cared about that. Nobody nobody had even remotely suggested that there would be an insurrection or a riot or something along those lines. But when you're in tough economic times and things are not going, you know, great, things happen sometimes and harrison was deeply concerned that there might be a presidential succession by means other than an election question mark question mark question mark the other thing in his 2-hour long inaugural address is that suddenly buried deep in this address is a hint that he is no longer in favor of a bank in the United States, and this catches everybody off guard. He does advocate for a strong currency based on gold and silver, but but suddenly it's not clear that he's going to sign this bill when the Whig Congress passes it. It's it's people are like, did, did we hear that right? And of course, this was in the day before videos and recordings and internet, so maybe we heard it right. And did he really say that? Is that what he actually meant? Because it's kind of vague. 32 days later, William Henry Harrison, Tippecanoe, died. And the weird thing about that is nobody, and I mean no one, had a clue as to what was supposed to happen next. What do I mean? When the president dies, who becomes the president? I see your hands, I hear your. I hear what you're saying. But in 1841, it was not clear that the vice president became the president. In fact, it was so vague and unclear. Go back and read the Constitution as originally written. And it is not clear that the vice president becomes the president. In fact, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of debate, a lot of maneuvering. Amongst the leading politicians of the day, people like Henry Clay, who who believe that they should be president, not, not the vice president. The vice president has no, has no claim on the presidency. This is the arguments they're making. In the end, John Tyler, the vice president, you remember that senator who complained about Jackson being an abuse of power by vetoing the Bank of, of the United States? John Tyler, who is the vice president now. Grabs a judge, takes the oath of office, and says, I'm it. I'm the president. And no one had any idea how to challenge that. They had no idea what to do. They they, they were literally frozen. They didn't like it because nobody really liked Tyler that much, but, but they didn't know what to do. And it literally became a tradition in this country that the vice president becomes president if he dies because of John Tyler. And it isn't until over almost 100 years later, 1933, when the, when the 20th Amendment is ratified, that this actually is codified in the Constitution as official that the Vice President takes over. Until then, it's just your tradition because of John Tyler. Who, by the way, if he were around today, would be called a wino, a Whig in name only. Now, despite his opposition to Jackson... Tyler is a staunch states' rights advocate who leans into the Democrat Party, even though he's a Whig. And if you want to, I'm not saying they're exactly the same, but if you wanted to replace Whig with Republican, it would give you the same idea. He, Tyler, shares many of the same concerns about the bank that his predecessor, Andrew Jackson, had, and he believes that the bank has too much power. It's unconstitutional, and it serves the interests of the elite at the expense of the common people. He's not against the bank per se, but he doesn't like the structure as proposed for the Second Bank of the United States. And so the Whig Congress, led by Henry Clay, passes a recharter bill. They try to get Tyler to sign it, and he says no. No. Congress says, okay, we we note your objections. They make a few modifications to it. They send it back to him, and he vetoes it again. Remember what I said about the Whigs? The Whigs blame the Democrats for not having a bank in the United States causing the problems of the Depression of 1837, which is extending well into 1841. The Whigs now have killed what they said was the solution. And in the consequence of that, all hell breaks loose. After Tyler vetoes the bill the second time, his cabinet, all but one guy, resigned. Now, these were all holdovers from Harrison because he'd only been president for 32 days. And Tyler didn't want to alienate the Whig party. But they all quit. Um, the Whigs get together and they hold a party meeting. And they literally excommunicate Tyler from the Whig party. They inform him that you are no longer a member of our party. You cannot claim to be a Whig because we have said you are not in our party anymore. Imagine, if you will, a party so opposed to its own president that it essentially throws him out of their party. Sound familiar at all? Tyler's president without a party, or a vice president for that matter. Impeachment articles are filed. Now, these are being pushed by a guy by the name of John Quincy Adams, a former president who is now a congressman, who has the bizarre idea that the will of Congress is the will of people, the people. Therefore, vetoes of bills by the president are, quote, abuses of power which is exactly what Tyler had said a few years earlier. But now Adams is saying that about Tyler, and he files articles of impeachment. Cooler heads are going to prevail. Uh, Congress sits down in their meetings, and they realize that, how do we get around the fact that the Constitution, which does not say that the vice president becomes president, does say that the president can veto bills? And see, if we let him veto the bill, then we're admitting that he's the president, even though he's already taken the oath of office, and we sort of assume that anyway. See the the catch-22s we're going through here? They realize that they're not going to be able to impeach him for this, even though they'd like to. But the second problem they have is if they impeach him, who becomes president? Because again, it's 1841, and nobody has thought this through yet. And on August 16th, 1841, congressmen who are furious about this, bankers who are furious about this, political elites, whigs, are really mad. And they take to the streets late in the afternoon of August 16th, 1841. And in what can only be described as the greatest protest of all time, certainly in Washington, D.C., They march to the White House, and along the way, they're shooting their guns. They're beating up people who disagree with them. They're looting businesses. They're destroying property, and they're burning stuff, including multiple effigies of John Tyler. You know, a mostly peaceful protest over the fact that John Tyler has vetoed the Second Bank of the United States. People at the time noted that it was the most violent day in the history of Washington, D.C. And oddly, today, you can hardly find anything about it at all except for occasional references here and there, mostly referring to it as the greatest riot of ever in Washington, D.C. No one wants to remember this at all. The newspaper editorial pages of the day are full of really fun to read and invective filled. Editorials about why John Tyler is basically Satan, and you know, <laughs> tall, dark-haired man, bad, I guess. And they don't—they're—they're they're just going to get rid of him. They don't—they don't like him. And in short, it becomes the greatest riot in all time uh, in Washington D.C. Well, you know, until another partyless POTUS will come along. And we need the political expediency of having another greatest riot in the history of Washington, D.C. It's these little things that we don't know about because in the end, they're not necessarily what we're being told that they are. And at the end of the day, these riots really didn't accomplish much of anything. But I guess they let people vent out somewhat. And at the end of the day, John Tyler is a forgotten footnote of history. And my supposition is that 100 years from now, more than 100 years from now, most of what we're going through today will also be a forgotten footnote of history. That economists will look at and go, well, on the one hand, they could have done this. On the other hand, they could have done that. It's kind of the opposite now, right? Now we have a strong centralized banking system and it's screwing things up. And so all the people who are Jacksonian are saying, see, it's screwing everything up. But back then they were saying, see, it was the loose management that was the deregulation that was screwing things up, and we need strong management. I guess the big lesson is, it's always the economy. It's the economy, stupid. And it's always the other guy's fault.